Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, and I am so happy to have you join me today. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. This is a place where we educate you, empower you with that education, maybe entertain you a little bit, and inspire you to live a fearlessly authentic life. Because I don't know about you, but I spent way too much not being the person I wanted to be and being afraid of taking risks. And it wasn't until about 20 years ago when I decided to make one of the biggest decisions of my life and change my life completely uh, with two small children, um, I decided to finally step into my power and realized not that I wasted so much time, but that I had so much more living to do. So I'm hoping that that's what we can do here with you. And I have an incredible guest here that I have been... um, a huge, huge fan of. I was going to say fangirling, but I that sounds really immature. Um, but um, I have been a huge fan of when um, for a couple of years now. And I actually, one of the first time I heard him, I was like, I need to have this man on the show. So welcome to the show, Dr. Lane Norton. Thanks for having me, Jody. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so excited to get into the nitty gritty of everything that you do and everything that you can teach us today. A little bit about Lane, his entire bio will be in the show notes, but a little bit about him. Lane describes himself a self-proclaimed nerd who lifts heavy things. I love that. Lane completed his BS in biochemistry in 2004 and a PhD in nutritional sciences in 2010, all honors. His competitive athletic career highlights include many, many world titles, including in 2022, Lane won gold at the IPF World Championships, making it back to Worlds for the first time since 2015. Most recently, this past July, Lane again won gold at the IPF National Championships. As an innovator in the fitness industry, Lane helped popularize flexible dieting and online nutrition coaching contest prep using an evidence-based and science-backed approach. Since moving away from online coaching, Lane has focused on writing books, including The Complete Reverse Dieting Guide, developing Carbon Diet Coach, a nutritional coaching app, and creating certification courses offered through the Clean Health Institute. In 2023, he partnered with Dr. Bill Campbell and the Clean Health Fitness Institute in the development of the Physique Coaching Academy. Lane's passion is helping others achieve their goals through education and hard work. So I guess this is a good match today since we're all about education. Yeah, absolutely. I I like to stay busy. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I honestly do not know how you stay on top of everything. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was when I first heard you, um, I think it was on Ed Milet's show. Mm. Um, I was like, 
I agree with everything this guy is talking about. Finally, somebody who's cutting through the BS actually knows what he's talking about. I've been working out for 42 years and been in the fitness industry for 34 years. And there's so much BS out there. And um, that is why I wanted you on Fearlessly Authentic, because not only are you fearless, you are authentic. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of people challenge you. And uh, you bring them the science and the facts. And that is what I love about you. Um, but I wanted to first ask you about um, if you could tell us a little bit about your journey into fitness and bodybuilding and what sparked your your interest in the field. Yeah, so um, I got into it for very selfish reasons of um, I was bullied a lot growing up and just wasn't really didn't run with the popular crowd. I was very, uh, nerdy and, uh, and, and just, like I said, not really accepted by my peers. So, uh, started lifting weights, you know, to, to try to, you know, I guess in my mind, I figured I could fix some of those things. Um, and lifting weights didn't really didn't fix that, but it, um, I fell in love with lifting and, um, when I went off to college, I was getting into bodybuilding. I'd played baseball through high school, but um, I knew I wasn't going to be, I knew I wasn't going to go to college for baseball. And I knew I wasn't uh, like that, that. There was no, there was no pro outlet for me. I was an average height or slightly a high, taller than average height, right-handed medium hitting first baseman. And those aren't really in high demand. So um, I would, I was already getting into lifting bodybuilding seemed like a natural progression. I got into bodybuilding, did my first show at 19, uh, freshman year, uh, the summer after my freshman year of college. At the same time, I changed my degree to biochemistry because I was just very fascinated by the human body um, and competed throughout undergrad school, loved it, fell in love with it. And uh, by my junior year of college, I just didn't really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I know I, I knew I wanted to like make some living in fitness or bodybuilding, but I didn't know how because at the time, I mean, really the only ways to make money, this is circa, you know, two th early 2000s, um, was open a gym, be a personal trainer, uh, start a supplement company, try to go win the Olympia. Like that, that was kind of the ways to make money. I, and yeah. um, and I, I, I didn't, I never felt called to, you know, I always competed in drug tested bodybuilding shows and drug tested powerlifting meets later in my life. And, um, you know, I don't have any, I don't have, I'm not a beat my chest, you know, I'm better than you because I don't take steroids, but that, that just never appealed to me. Um, and so I knew it wasn't going to be that I didn't have the capital to open a gym or start a supplement company. And the idea of being a personal trainer all day on the gym floor, I just, it, for whatever reason, didn't appeal to me. So I started looking at grad school, quite frankly, because I wanted to learn more and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I figured if I delayed the real world by two to six years, uh, maybe I'd have it figured out by then. And uh, so I, I was very fortunate. I, I really had no idea about a PhD or anything like that. Um, didn't even really know like the difference between a PhD and a master's. I just knew a PhD took longer. And I was fortunate to get with a great mentor, Dr. Don Lehman, who's one of the like just gods of protein metabolism, I guess, the, like one of the pillars of the scientific community of protein metabolism, just a very legendary uh, guy in the space. 
who was also a really good mentor because there's a lot of professors that are well known who aren't good mentors for graduate students. And he was a great mentor. So um, as I got into doing my PhD in nutritional sciences, I was still competing in bodybuilding, uh, won a pro card, but I also like during, as all this is going on, I started writing, uh, I started posting on various bodybuilding forums because this is before social media. Like bodybuilding.com, things like bodybuilding. that. Bodybuilding.com. Yeah. I think I posted like, made like 70,000 posts over like a 10 year period. It was done. Right. I just loved it. Um, and I started writing for the main site because um, a couple of writers saw me posting and were like, you should write for the site because you know what you're talking about. Um, so I started writing for them, got a video series with them. Everything got very popular on their site. Um, so people started emailing me, asking me for nutritional advice. So I started coaching in 2005 online before anybody really was doing it at scale. Um, and just like as a way to make some side cash, like I, I, I didn't really think much about it. I'd get, you know, 50 bucks. Like I charge like 10 bucks a week. I'd get like 50 bucks and I'd be like, oh, cool. I can take my girlfriend out for dinner or something, you know, like it right. was, I really didn't think anything of it. And over time, just through sheer word of mouth, uh, that grew into a full-time like six-figure business over about three or four years. And at the same time, just kept getting more and more opportunities to write for magazines, to appear in videos. I got a chance to announce, like, announce the Olympia a few years, um, uh, the webcast that is. And so I just said yes to so many things and did so many things um, and then finished my PhD. And at the same time, did my first pro show in, in bodybuilding did well there, won a pro show, got into powerlifting. It turns out I was actually better at powerlifting than I was bodybuilding. Uh, I won two national titles, 2014, 2015, went to Worlds 2015, got a silver medal overall, set a world squat record at the time, went through some injuries, came back, um, and you kind of covered the rest of the story. That is a really abridged version of everything, I guess. Uh, and along the way started... I kind of, um, I built a business in the reverse way that most people do it, which is, you know, most people develop a product or a service that does really well. And then they get the, as the CEO or owner, they get well known for it. I built this personal brand, but I had nothing to sell people other than one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I realized, you know, I'm trading, you know, if I want to make, you know, if I want to make 25% more money, I've got to do 25% more time. And so I started going, okay, what are things that people want from me? that would add value that I could sell. And then that's how I started like these other businesses. So it's, uh, it's been a heck of a journey. <laughs> we, we sound very familiar and we're probably about 20, 25 years apart because I, I started in 2002 after my divorce and I was like, well, what do I love to do? I was a stay at home mom. What do I love to do? And it is hard to put everything that you just did in a very condensed form. So thank you for sharing all of that. And I know that you were going through it really fast, but I mean, you've accomplished so much and I know it's not easy. You're very humble about it and very modest about it. And it's, you know, the competitions, what drove you to do them? Was it, you know, you mentioned, well, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I sort of did things in the reverse way. I mean, for me, I did it to build more confidence. I did it because it was something I loved and I, I'm i always pushing myself to the next level. I want to see how far I could push my body and my mind 
I didn't even realize how how my mind was getting strong as well. And that led me to have more confidence. And then I opened up my own business. So I was curious if those thoughts were in your mindset as well. So I think I actually did it out of insecurity at first, to be honest. Um, Or if it's not insecurity, maybe um, I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. Um, I... I was never accepted by my peers and I was told I would never be anything. I was told I was worthless. And I think a lot of it stemmed from, I am going to prove you wrong. I'm going to take that. I'm going to prove you wrong. Love it. So, you know, not the healthiest way to approach things, I guess, but I did fall in love with competing, um, with pushing my body and it gave me confidence, but not because I got stronger and not because I got more muscle. It gave me confidence because I had to come up against you know, a lot of setbacks, plateaus, things I had to push through, things I had to get past. And I always call this progressive overload for life, which is um, the more hard stuff you do and get through, the more hard stuff you can do and get through. And, um, you know, I always tell people, like the first time I walked, like my best squat ever at Worlds in 2015 was 668 pounds. Now, if I walked in a gym the first time and tried to squat half of that, it crushed me. Like there is no chance. Right. And so, but you work up to it over time, you expose yourself to stress and you adapt. And the, the, as my, my coach says, adaptation is never comfortable. So it hurts physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, but that's how learning how to get through those and work through those and seeing what I could do when I didn't quit and uh, was consistent, really, I always tell people, if the only thing you learn from lifting weights is how to get a great body or get stronger, you really missed everything. Like you missed 99% of the life. It's a metaphor for life, in my opinion, the gym. It's like a metaphor for life, right? Absolutely. So, you know, learning how to work through those, work through injuries, setbacks, uh, a lot of stuff that like a lot of people told me would be career ending. Like even when I was 20, I had two herniated discs in my neck. I was told I'd probably never be as strong again as I once was. Um, I completely tore my right pectoral. I partially torn my left pectoral. I've torn muscles in both hips. I've had two herniated discs in my lower back, two bulge discs in my lower back. I've partially torn one of my adductors. And yet I'm still here, still squat over 600 pounds, still deadlift over 700 pounds, you know, still doing it. And uh, it really gave me a lot of confidence that if I commit to something, and I do the work, and I'm consistent, uh, that I can get through almost anything. And so I think that's what I really love about it, is it, it taught me how to have true confidence. And I think, you know, true confidence, uh, two definitions that I like, which one is the willingness to wade into uncertainty. Because whenever you attempt something difficult, there's no guarantee it's going to work out. And then also, you know, confidence is basically the ability to try really hard things knowing that it might not go your way and you're still going to go after it anyway. And you can only develop that through, there's all these, uh, sorry, I'm going off on kind of a tangent, but there's all these books about how to be more confident. And I, I, you can read all the books you want. You can watch all the motivational videos you want. You have to do, you have to execute. You have to try hard stuff. If you don't do it, you're not going to actually have confidence. 
Because why would you, if you've never gotten through anything difficult, why would you have confidence that when something difficult pops up that you can get through it? So you got to ideally, you know, your first setbacks that you experience are hopefully like relatively small and you can get through them and learn from that. And then when other things come up, you know, you can handle it better. I mean, David Goggins said, you know, I don't run to be the fastest person in the world. I run. So when I get a phone call that something tragic's happened, I don't fall apart. And I, I kind of like that. Definition. You know what? I've heard him say that. And before we got on the air, I told you that I was hospitalized with salmonella food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And my husband, who is a physician, um, was blown away at my strength. I walked in there, they did a scan. I had pancolitis caused from Ooh. the salmonella. Yeah, it was bad. I was on morphine for three days. It was it was really, really bad. And he said, I, I've never, he's never seen me suffer like that. And he's like, you were so together with it. Now, maybe it's because he's a man and I'm a woman, um, but um, I yeah, think- men tend to be drama, dramatic when we're he's sick. He's very dramatic. And I think I kept it all together because of the things that you're talking about. Maybe it was having two children, two miscarriages, and then you know all the, the years that I competed and building that resi resilience um, and, and just knowing that I could get through anything if I, you know, in most cases with the right mindset, um, but it does, it teaches you so much about life. And I've tried to encourage at least one of my daughters to compete and not just to, because I want them to win, but I want them to go through the journey. And it's almost like when you get a new client, you've been coaching for years. When you get that new client, you sort of, you know, the mindset they need to have. And I want to go to that right now about mindset versus physically doing the work, you know, that when you work with somebody that they do have to have the right mindset and most of them do not. So how do you work with somebody who isn't like us, who doesn't have that strong mindset? I mean, my coaches will tell me to, you know, you got to get up and you've got to do fasted cardio for 45 minutes in the morning, Jody. Like I hate cardio. I friggin' hate, 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 hate cardio. But if you tell me to do it because I'm going to get stronger, I'm going to get better, it's going to change my body, it's going to change my mind, my life maybe, I'm going to do it. So what do you do when you have somebody who maybe resists the change? So I had a, um, I don't really take on many clients anymore, but I, I take on like maybe one or two a year um, <clears throat> because I do like to keep my finger in coaching just because I think that's important for me to like work with actual people and not just read studies. Um, and I had a guy, he was really, um, very successful in, in the like financial areas of his life, but very unsuccessful with diet and nutrition. And I find that this type of person typically comes to me and says, okay, I'm ready to work out six times a week for two hours. And I'm doing all the, and I'm like, listen, this, is, this isn't going to work. Like, why don't we, if you, Hey, if you do six times, fantastic. Let's start out with the goal <clears throat> that we're going to get you in the gym three days a week consistently. All right. And then if we get stuff on top of that, that's gravy because it's important to understand where the goal is, like where the, where, where that is set, because if it's six times a week and you only get in five, now you're like, Oh man, I'm failing, whatever. And especially people who have like a perfectionist mindset, they'll just go, Oh, I screwed it up. Might as well just not do anything. And so I want somebody to start with like, it's like if you're climbing a mountain, if you think about how far up the mountain you've got to go, you're going to freak out. Um, but if you just focus on the next ledge, 
it becomes much more palatable. I mean, you know, they, it's the same, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You can only eat an elephant one bite at a time, but really there is something too, like what is in my line of vision that's reasonable as a section of this unreasonable goal. Okay. And I'm going to focus on that. And there are going to be times when I feel like not doing it. But if I see that, okay, here's my check mark coming up. It's right around the corner. Um, it's going to be easier for me to continue to execute versus if I, you know, if I'm just looking at the top of the mountain all the time. And so really like what I start with people like that to get them in that mindset is, Hey, what, what can we do reasonably right now that you can execute consistently? And then once you're hitting that consistently, then we can start to ramp up some of these goals. But if they, if their experience is, well, I'm going to go six days a week, you know, for two hours a day and they can't do that, then they're going to feel bad and end up quitting. So I'm trying to meet them kind of a little bit closer to where they're at. Right. And I, and it's gradual and it's small increments because as you said, especially if you have a type A person, they're going to want to succeed at everything that they do. And some people get frustrated because they're like, no, 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 I can do it all. Um, but I do find, and it sounds like you're the same way that taking those incremental and gradual steps do get them the success. How did he do by the way? Right. He's down uh, over 50 pounds. Wow. That's, that's really great. I, um, it is, it is difficult to sometimes deal with the different personalities when they want it all. And it just, it doesn't happen like that. You know, it, no, it doesn't it happen. It doesn't happen overnight. So what are, um, you know, obviously you get online and you debunk lots of myths in the fitness industry regarding fitness and nutrition. And what's one of the most common nutrition myths that you come across? I'm sure you've answered this before, but I'd love to know if it's changed and what it is. Um, most common. I mean, there's so many. Um, I, I don't know if I could pick one that's the most common. I, I think overall, um, it's probably more of a category, which is this like appeal to naturalism. Um, like the naturalistic fallacy, which is people have this belief that anything natural must be better for you or anything um, that our ancestors did must be better for you. Um, this is kind of like the, like um, versus Western medicine. Well, just versus just in general. Okay. So let me, let me give you an example. So a lot of times people have the, like uh, years ago, there was this invisible hand theory of economics. Okay. Which was basically like um, these sort of things happen in the market. And so the market must want them to happen. When in reality, what you're dealing with is a bunch of companies competing with each other. In fact, um, I was just reading a paper on this as it relates to uh, obesity and uh, weight loss and set point. So have you ever heard of set point theory? So set point theory is basically this idea that you have like a, um, a kind of a, uh, a level of body fat that your body likes to sit in. And if you get above that, your body will fight you. If you get below that, your body will fight you, but it fights you harder going down than it does going up. Um, and 
this paper I read basically was making the case that you're, indivi- you're made up of individual cells. They don't care. They're competing with other cells for nutrients. And what you're having happen on the whole is you're observing this phenomenon that you see that you think, oh, the body must want this. And therefore, that's why the body does this. When in reality, there may not be a reason. So getting back to the naturalistic fallacy, people will misconstrue what I'm saying. You know, I'm not saying that you should eat processed food over unprocessed food or anything like that. What I am saying is when it comes to nutrients or foods or compounds or whatever it may be, each compound nutrient food should be evaluated on its own merits. And what is its, um, what does the data say? So a great example of this, or I just put a post about this today, seed oils. There's a whole I big hubbubaloo about seed oils, okay? Right. And um, it's it's one of the most insane cults I've ever come across. And if you, you can find mechanisms, for example, if you overfeed polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are essentially seed oils, you see increased lipid peroxidation and some of these other things. But if you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats, and that's important because you're not overfeeding it, you're replacing it because if you're eating one thing, you're replacing another thing, right? If you're holding calories steady. They either, when they do studies like that, they see either neutral or positive effects on cardiovascular disease, mortality, uh, cancer is more neutral than it is positive, and a metabolic, uh, metabolic health. So, like, shouldn't that be the, the, what we care about? But people get so caught up in these individual mechanisms, like, oh, well, but this thing activates this, and what about this? And it's like, okay, that's like saying, don't invest in this mutual fund because it has a stock in it that's down by 40% this year. But the mutual fund's up by 25% overall. Who gives a damn about the one stock that's down, right? So I'm saying when you're looking at foods, a way of eating, whatever, look at the overall outcome. What does the overall outcome say? Because I hold open and space for the fact that foods and nutrients may have positives and negatives. The question is, do the positives outweigh the negatives? And we should evaluate that for each individual food in each case. Um, and then the other thing they'll they'll kind of bring up is, well, look at the way it's processed and created. It's similar to the way motor oil is created. My response is always, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care if uh, Dr. Jekyll made it in a lab with um, rats, you know, milling it around. Like, I just don't care because what should matter is if we feed this to people in place of something else, do they get healthier? Right. That should be the question. Right. And that is, I, and it's almost like people use that as a distraction from actually focusing on what's really healthy for them. I see that often. Well, what about this? And what about that? No, no, no. Just focus on the stuff that's going to help you and don't be bothered by all of the other extra things that are distracting you because, you know, eating healthy is pretty simple, but people make it very confusing and complicated. And I don't know if because they don't really want to understand that eating healthy is so simple. You can't sell simple. That's why. 
It's hard okay. to spell simple. Well, when we get back, we're going to take a quick break right now. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. You're going to break all of this stuff down, macronutrients, fats, carbs. We're going to talk about semi-glutides and um, a few other wonderful things. Women. Great. Okay. We'll be back in a few minutes with Dr. Lane Norton. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. On Fearlessly Authentic, Jody talks about mental and physical well-being, and the key to both starts with proper nutrition. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan was created to help your body feel better. Whether your goal is to lose weight, gain muscle, or just feel lighter and more energetic, Following this meal plan can help you get there. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a 21-day plan to help you learn the most important things about the food we eat and what foods are right for you based on your goals and activity level. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a real plan for real life. This is not a diet, but a change in lifestyle. The plan is simple and easy for you to follow. In the 21-day plan, you will receive meal ideas, snack ideas, a grocery list, and a 21-day journal crucial to your success with inspirational quotes to keep you motivated and keep track of your progress. The key to success is commitment, consistency, and willpower. Be fearless and trust the journey. Go to JodyFit.com to purchase the JodyFit meal plan now and use the promo code podcast to get 25% off. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you may have. Send an email to info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. That's info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. Now, back to Fearlessly Authentic. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm here with Dr. Lane Norton, and we are going through everything about nutrition and fitness, the myths, the truths, and everything. And we've got the truth teller here right now, science-backed. Here we, here we go. All right, Lane, explain to everyone what the three macronutrients are and what they do. All right. So uh, protein is unique and it is the only nitrogen containing uh, macronutrient there is. So if I was going to give a quick one minute crash course in protein, proteins are uh, digested into amino acids, which contain an amine group, which has a nitrogen on it. 
Um, those amino acids are involved in uh, broken down and then absorbed and then can be circulated throughout the body and used as essentially building blocks for all the proteins in our bodies. And that goes for skeletal muscle. Pretty much every tissue is protein is what it's made out of on a tissue level. Uh, there are like lipids and carbohydrates, but the, the majority of it is lean tissue uh, other than adipose. Adipose is the one exception to that. Um, and so they're very critically important, especially the essential amino acids, because your body cannot synthesize the essential amino acids. So you have to get them through diet. Um, and if you ingest enough protein, we, they have shown that can increase your rates of muscle protein synthesis. Uh, it's probably better for building muscle, um, you know, and, and may have some other health benefits as well. Uh, in terms of satiety as well as metabolic um, metabolic health. Uh, carbohydrates are can we just stop for a second just get into sure. protein for a few for a few minutes. Um, protein is the number one macronutrient that is like the number one most important one out of the three, would you say? Well, they're all important for their own reasons, but I right. you know protein is if you're gonna grab a macronutrient, the one you're gonna grab is gonna be the protein for the most part, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, so you don't get malnutrition from not having enough carbohydrate. Um, any malnutrition from lack of dietary fat can happen, but it takes longer. But malnutrition from protein, you can even, if even if you have enough calories, you can still uh, have protein malnutrition. And so protein is unique in that aspect. And, and for, the reasons we both mentioned, um, yeah, if I only had to pick one, I'm picking protein, uh, even though, uh, you know, it, eventually just eating protein, you could have some serious problems as well. Um, well right. The, that's the, a unit. Well, you need the fiber. <laughs> right. Well, fiber. But then also there's um, they have what was called rabbit poisoning back in the um, when uh, explorers landed over here. If they were found that they were pretty much exclusively eating rabbits. They actually... Um, they still don't really completely understand it, but um, some of them died and they think it's due to the lack of uh, dietary fat, the fact that it was only protein. So, um, but anyways, no, nobody's eating that way, hopefully. Right. Um, but yeah, protein seems to have a, a better thermic effect of food, uh, meaning it takes more energy. Uh, your body's putting more energy to get the energy out of protein. So you get like a lower net calorie load. Um and you have, uh, in general, better satiety with protein. Um, it's more filling and seems to possibly improve insulin sensitivity, all things being equal. There's a lot of talk about how much protein somebody needs. I've always said that it's based on your activity level and your goals. That's simplifying it again, what we talked about before the break. It's pretty simple, um, but people want to complicate things. Um is it that simple or do you believe that gender and age come into it as well? If keeping this simplified. So gender doesn't seem to matter. Um, age probably matters a little bit. Um, they do show that as you get older, um, you have deficits in your anabolic signaling in response to protein. You can still get the same anabolic response, but it probably requires more protein. Now, how much is tough to say because in these studies you're looking at 70 year olds versus 20 year olds. Right. So 
um, when you're looking at that kind of gap, you're probably looking at, you know, increased protein needs of 20 to 30 percent, something like that. Uh, I'm just spitballing because the data, there's not a lot of data on it. It's not super clear. Um, but in general age, it does seem that you probably should increase protein as you get older. Um, activity does matter more so lean mass. Lean mass is the biggest determinant of protein requirements. And as far as amounts go, I mean, keep in mind, I I always, this is probably a little bit pedantic, but people will say the word need and need, it depends on what you mean by need, right? Like if you're talking about what you need to prevent a deficiency, that's just the RDA, which is about, you know, 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. If you're talking about what is optimal for human health, that's more debatable. Uh, If you're talking about what is optimal, like what is the ceiling that you can use for building muscle, um, you know, that research tends to like kind of center around that two grams per kilogram target or around one gram per pound of body weight. Um, There are some research studies that seem to suggest maybe higher could have some beneficial effects. Um, But it seems like the vast majority of the benefits are, you know, around two grams per kilogram. Yeah, it just kills me when I hear somebody say, well, I can't eat that much protein, especially when it's a man and he's got a belly. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You can't eat that much protein. He's like, well, you know, I, I too much protein is going to affect my kidneys. I'm like, it, trust me, you need more lean protein. It'll get rid of that belly over there. <laughs> and uh, so the other question I had about protein was, so that conversation at each sitting, let's just say the average person's eating three meals a day that's just an average person and they weigh a hundred pounds. That's not the average person. They weigh 150 pounds. Um, How much, because protein is not stored in the body, right? Unlike fat and, and, and carbohydrates. So I've always heard that it's between 36 and 40 grams of protein per sitting. If you eat more, basically it's being peed and pooped out. So being used for the, for the reason we want it to be used for energy. Yeah. So protein is, um, it can't be stored. You're right. Um, and you're not going to just like get rid of it. That's not really how it happens. What's going to happen is instead of being used for muscle protein synthesis, it's going to be oxidized for energy, but that doesn't make it worthless. Um, You're going to digest and absorb all the protein or almost all the protein you eat. Um, But, you know, that doesn't make it worthless or, you know, not worth having. Um, So, yeah, I would say, you know, in terms of like per meal, anywhere from 20 to 50 grams of protein in a meal, depending on the quality of the source. If you're talking about like really highly digestible bioavailable sources of protein, um, you know, 20 grams, like whey protein will probably do it 20 to 25 grams. If you're talking about, you know, a plant-based intact protein, it might be closer to 50 grams, but you know, you're going to, your body's going to use all of it. You're not just going to waste it. That's not, that's not really how it works. Um, But like how much will get used for muscle building is a a different question. Right. That, that was sort of like what I was, trying to say um how because to use that protein for bodybuilding to maintain the muscle mass that we have or to build uh because not everybody out there in the world is trying to lose weight there are people um who are trying to gain muscle as well so let's get into carbohydrates thanks for explaining the protein Mm -hmm. to everybody so carbohydrates are you know basically they can be broken down into the constitutive saccharides, which basically 
you know, the monosaccharides are glucose, fructose, and galactose, essentially. Um, and so, obviously, glucose is one of the main fuels for the body. Your body has an obligate glucose usage of about 120 grams a day. Now, fortunately, your body can make around 120 grams of glucose per day without any glucose intake. Um, and that is because you have something called gluconeogenesis, which the liver can produce glucose from non-glucose substrates. Now, uh, that's led people to say, well, see, you don't need carbohydrates, so why even have them? Well, carbohydrates do have, just because you don't need something doesn't mean it's not helpful. You don't need a cell phone or a car, but hey, you know, I don't see anybody giving up their cell phone or cars. Um, carbohydrates, the, the main benefits are, uh, especially with endurance exercise, um, high intensity exercise, where people are pushing their lactic acid threshold, um, fats and ketones can only be oxidized in the presence of oxygen. So if you're doing high output work where you can't get enough oxygen, like sprinting or weightlifting in some cases, then um, you have to use carbohydrate. You cannot, you cannot just, you can't use fat. Um, and so, and the research studies show that like your, your performance is typically better with carbohydrate versus not. Some exceptions to that are be when you get like, below 65% of your VO2 max with like marathon running or ultra marathons, then there's not as clear of a, a difference in performance. Um, but carbohydrates are, are a great fuel. Um, and they're the main, like if the body has a pick between um, glucose or fats, it will choose to preferentially oxidize glucose. Um, so yeah, there, and, and the main benefit of carbohydrate containing foods is many of them are, if you, you know, do, Healthful ones are high in fiber, and fiber has a multitude of benefits. So, another thing that one of the reasons why I love following you and love what you have to say is the people that say, I don't eat carbs. Nothing drives me more crazy because they think a carb is just bread or pasta. They don't realize that it's fruits and vegetables as well. And I just hope that you keep educating people because they just need to understand and. Uh, the no carb diet is just, it's, for me, in my opinion, it's just not a healthy, nor is it a sustainable, uh, realistic way to eat for longevity. It, it can be healthy. It can be, well, it's healthier. So let me back up. If okay. somebody can stick to it, for some right. people, they love low carb. It feels easy for them. Totally fine. If somebody can stick to it, it's better than the diet that you know, the standard American diet, right? But is it better than a comparative diet where they lose weight and also are still eating fiber? No, it's not better than that. So I think those are important distinctions to make. And a lot of people will go, well, you can't say that because I did a ketogenic diet. And look how my blood markers improved. Yeah, you lost 50 pounds and your blood markers improved. Great. If you lost 50 pounds through another means, they would improve that way too. And you That's might right. have been healthier because you were having, you know, a, a more balanced diet. But if that was the only way you could lose 50 pounds and that's what you could stick to, then yeah, you're better off with that than, than how you work. And I hear you say that often about whatever works for you to lose that weight because it makes you healthier, that works. But I also hear you talk about sustainability as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so important. Um, that, that comment that you make all the time is um, that it, it needs to be sustainable. It's got to be a lifestyle. The, the research is very, very, very clear on it. There's no ambiguity in the research. Um, in fact, there was a recent, or I don't want to say recent, probably like within the last three years, 
uh, meta-analysis of 14 popular diets. And what they found was all of them were equally bad at facilitating long-term weight loss. However, when they took individuals and stratified them from least adherent to most adherent on the diets, regardless of whatever diet they used, what they found was essentially a linear effect of those diets on weight loss, which means the best diet for you is the one you can make into a lifestyle and stick to consistently. But most people don't approach diet that way. They go, I'm going on a ketogenic diet or or whatever kind of diet or fasting. They lose the weight and then they go, okay, I made it. I can, I, now I can do whatever. No, this isn't like, um, so if you got sick and you took antibiotics, it kills the, it kills the, the bacteria and you're good. You don't need to keep taking antibiotics. If you're a diabetic, you need to keep taking insulin. It, it's not like you just take one shot and you're, you're good. Um, lifestyle intervention for nutrition is the same way. If you stop doing it, it will stop working. Great point. Great point. All right, let's go into fats. People, again, I hear people afraid whenever I've had clients, um, you know, no, no fat, no fat, no. Explain, please explain what fats do, healthy fats versus, I hate to say the word bad fats, but mm-hmm. not so great fats. If you could explain that. You were talking about a little bit with the seed oils, but healthy fats and why they're good for us. So fats encompass a really broad category, broader categories, lipids, uh, encompasses you know fatty acids, sterols, uh, waxes, all kinds of different things. Um, but essentially they're, they're very different from carbohydrates and fats because they are what's called nonpolar. So they don't, it's basically think oil and water, like they don't mix with water. So you actually have to digest them kind of a completely separate way. And they're not absorbed through the liver, like carbohydrates and fats, or sorry, like carbohydrates and proteins, they're absorbed through the lymphatic system. Um, that's not really here nor there in terms of the metabolism of everything, but there was kind of this push in the 70s and 80s that, you know, fat is what makes you fat. You know, now it's carbs make you fat. And the research shows that uh, overfeeding carbohydrates or fats, either one is equally fattening. Uh, and it also shows that when you, uh, it, with looking at different diets and differing levels of carbohydrate and fat, if the diets are equal in protein and calories, um, there's no difference in weight loss. And we have now over 20 controlled feeding studies and the controlled part's important because it means that people like free living studies, people just end up going and doing whatever and adherence is very poor. But in controlled feeding studies, when the food is provided to participants and they are monitored and they eat equal protein, equal calories between diets and they vary the carbohydrate and fat, there's no difference in fat loss. So what that says is do what you prefer. What do you prefer and do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it comes to fats, I think the considerations are, you know, omega-3s seem to have some health-promoting benefits that that I, I'm relatively confident in that literature that they do tend to improve blood lipids and insulin sensitivity. Um, there's been a lot made of omega-6s recently that you should avoid them, that they're bad for you. This kind of wrapped up in the whole seed oil stuff. Uh, omega-6s aren't as, as nearly as good for you as omega-3s, but the the research on them seems to show that they're if you exchange omega sixes in place of saturated fat, you either have a neutral or positive effect. Saturated fat, uh, and I'm not here to demonize saturated fat. I'm not saying you can't have any saturated fat. I'm not saying to not eat animal products or anything like that. 
but saturated fat, when it's high enough, can raise LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol. Now, I this is something I changed my mind on. I was in the camp of people who said LDL doesn't really matter. It's all about the HDL to LDL ratio. And I was I was that way until up about till about 2014. And then uh, they had a lot of what are called Mendelian randomization studies that came out, which essentially uh, the way Mendelian randomization works is you have people, let's take LDL, for example, who naturally secrete more or less LDL and who naturally clear more or less LDL. And so you can look at these people over the course of their lifetime and see, hey, who dies earlier from cardiovascular disease? And man, when they do the regression, you basically can draw a straight line through the lifetime exposure to LDL and the risk of a cardiovascular disease event. And so to me, that's basically like a lifelong randomized control trial. To me, that's what I care about. So I'm not saying you can't have any saturated fat. What I tell people is try to keep it below 10% of total calories, 7% if you can, and you know choose, um, choose polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fats when you can in place of saturated fats. Um, and those are kind of the considerations when it comes to dietary fat. Okay. Thank you for explaining all of that. Exercise, diet. How, you know, if you're diet, I always see the people, okay, I've been doing this for a long time, running on that treadmill, their body doesn't change, their body doesn't change. And they're like, they're that guy and girl bragging about being at the gym every single day, but nothing changes because diet is 80% of the equation. You've got genetics about 10% and the training is 10%. But diet, which is the hardest thing to adhere to for a long, for your whole life, um, where does exercise and why is exercise so important with a healthy diet? And why doesn't your body change? If you're exercising every day, you're on, you know, the Raptor machine for an hour, reading a magazine, talking to your friends, and you're like, nothing's changing. Body doesn't change. Well, I think your body will change a little bit, but, you know, unless you are progressively, you know, improving it'll improve a little bit and then stay at that level. Right. 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 So, um, you know, I think there's a few, you know, the benefits of exercise one is really, even if you don't lose weight, if you exercise regularly, you'll get metabolically healthier. So you absolutely should exercise no matter what, when it comes to weight loss, there's a lot of misunderstandings around exercise. Some people say, Oh, it makes no difference in weight loss. Some people say, well, it makes all the difference. The reality is diet is the bigger lever to pull. And the reason is Thank what you. it takes what Can you say takes, that again? Can you say that again, please? Diet is the biggest lever to pull. Yes. And, and the reason is, think about how easy it is to eat a thousand calories. Have a slice of cheesecake. Boom. You can eat that in what? Five, 10 minutes. Now think about how long it takes to expend a thousand calories. It is a very long time. Even with intense exercise, you're going for an hour or two. Like you have to go really hard. So just not eating the cheesecake is easier for most folks, like in terms of time, like in terms of time management. And so that's part of it. But another thing about exercise, it does help with weight loss. The reason being is on average, 
exercise will actually sensitize you to satiety signals. So it actually has a slightly anorectic effect. Now, people get this mixed up. They'll say, no, I feel hungry after exercise. You, you do, but you don't compensate fully. What I mean is, let's say you burn 500 calories from exercise. On average, your body will compensate by you eating about uh, 200 calories extra. Use that's still a 300 calorie net benefit, right? Now, some people, people are individuals, people, people are different. Some people feel hungrier from exercise. For them, maybe there's more of a compensation and that ends up being a problem, right? But overall, the effect seems to be that exercise actually helps with satiety. Um, and psychologically, if people are exercising, maybe they're more likely to buy in on diet as well. Um, but I think exercise is, you know, it is a very huge lever to pull just because you don't have to lose any weight to get healthier. So you absolutely should do it. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, I have uh, literally a hundred more questions to ask <laughs> you and we have about two and a half minutes left. I can't even believe this. Um, wanted to ask you about semi-glutides. I wanted you to talk about your app. I'll give you a quick 30 second. Okay. And then, seconds. and then your app. Yep. Go ahead. Okay. So semi-glutide seems to be the most effective um, intervention we have for treating obesity. Uh, it is a it is a variant of a gut hormone that acts on the hypothalamus as well as your uh, GI to tell you that you're full. So it basically is a, a the best appetite suppressant we've ever come across. Um, there's concern about you know thyroid cancer. There's concern about uh, loss of lean mass. What I'll say is the studies on thyroid cancer were in rodents. I'm not really concerned about that until I see more data. Uh, and the studies on lean mass loss show about 40% of the mass loss is from lean tissue, but that's no, that's not that much different than studies that are looking at diet without exercise. So uh, they'll need to show studies with exercise and semiglutide. Overall, it seems like a pretty positive thing. There are side effects in terms of uh, gastroparesis and those sorts of things. But overall, it seems to be relatively well tolerated and works well. But if you're using it to lose five pounds, I think you're an idiot. Um, this should be reserved for people who really, really need it, not people who are just looking to look good at the beach. Thank you. I call this this last summer the summer of skinny, where I saw everybody on Instagram get skinny and lose muscle. Um, the other thing that I want to ask you is please share your app. Yep. So I helped create a nutritional coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach, which essentially um, I tried to put what I do coaching-wise into an algorithm. So this app will basically ask you questions about your goals, your individual metabolism, and it will come up with customized nutritional recommendations based on your metabolism, your goals, and your dietary preferences. And then you'll check in with the app each week based on how you progress. The app will adjust your nutritional targets to make sure that you stay on point towards your goals. So you can find that in the Google Play Store as well as the Apple Store, and it's called Carbon Diet Coach. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. We have 30 seconds left. How can people find you? Uh, BioLane.com, and I'm BioLane on all social media. Okay. Lane, wait, can you answer what it means for you to be fearlessly authentic in like 20 seconds? To always stick to the data regardless of my personal bias and regardless of my feelings and regardless of what other people are trying to pressure me to say. 
Woof, sounds like a scientist to me. Uh, Dr. Lane Norton, thank you so much for being on Fearlessly Authentic today. And until next week, we will see you next week. And Lane, thanks again so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you.